Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi there, and welcome to New Books in South Asian Studies. I'm your host, Ian Cook. Today we're talking about Ocean of Trade, South Asian Merchants, Africa and the Indian Ocean, circa 1750 to 1850 by Pedro Machado. The book is published by Cambridge University Press, and Pedro is Assistant Professor in the Department of History at Indiana University Bloomington. Ocean of Trade is a richly detailed and engaging account of Gujarati merchants and their role in the trade of textiles, ivory and slaves across the Indian Ocean. I really enjoyed reading it and I had the pleasure of talking with Pedro just a few moments before. So without any further ado, it gives me great pleasure to welcome Pedro to the show. Thanks a lot for coming on and thanks a lot for your wonderful book. Well, thank you, Ian, for having me. It's, uh, it's a real pleasure. I'm looking forward to talking about your book. So, but before we do talk about that, I was wondering, can you first please tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, um, your academic background, actually, and your research interests prior to Oceans of Trade? Sure. Um, well, prior to Ocean of Trade, I was, um, you know, I was someone who was born and raised in Cape Town in South Africa. Um, and uh, from fairly early on, I did an, an, an undergraduate degree at the University of Cape Town, um, I became sort of interested in uh, the kind of intermingled histories you find in Cape Town. You know, Cape Town's been a very interesting sort of port city. Uh, It's had connections to the Atlantic. It's had connections, of course, to the Indian Ocean as well. Some of those uh, sort of articulated through um, uh, a sort of a Dutch empire. Um, And so you find really interesting sort of communities um, in Cape Town. Uh, But then also, you know, partly through some family trips up to um, uh, the sort of east coast of South Africa to places like Durban especially, uh, which has a very um, large sort of, um, uh, you know, from all over the subcontinent, has a very large um, South Asian sort of population and and, uh, and South Asian communities. Um, and I'm, I remember quite vividly going to this particular sort of market and, you know, it's a, it's a you know, a cliche, but uh, you know, all these sort of spices um, uh, that were being sold in this in this particular market kind of left uh, an impression on me. Um, and food, actually, uh, and 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 the kind of uh, you know the pathways of food. Um, although I don't work on food, but that sort of got me interested in um, this sort of you know. Um, the larger histories in which, um, you know, certain places in South Africa, particularly coastal places, were sort of embedded or a part of. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, I started thinking about this sort of, you know, some more. Um, I trained, as I said, at the University of Cape Town and did, I was an English and history major, um, and I did mostly, um, you know, African history and mostly uh, sort of Southern African history um, you know, some courses on slavery and things like like that. But it was really only when I started um, uh, doing an MA, uh, which I did at the University of New Hampshire uh, in the United States, um, that I started getting a bit more serious about trying to uh, think about a project that would, um, you know, in some way sort of speak to these kind of entanglements, uh, these sort of larger, you know, histories. Uh, but I didn't want to work so much on South Africa. I wanted to work on, um, 
on other places. Uh, and that's really what actually took me out of South Africa, because at the time, this is the early 1990s, um, uh, it was not that easy to find people to work with if you didn't work on South African history. Um, and so I eventually landed up uh, for my PhD at the School of, of Oriental and African Studies, SOAS, uh, in London, um, where I worked with a wonderful uh, supervisor called um, William Gervais Clarence Smith. Um, and um, he was influential in helping me uh, you know, shape, um, shape the topic. And that's when I sort of really started then um, you know, uh, developing this idea of sort of networks and exchanges. And I was interested um, in, you know, in trade history, certainly, uh, but I wanted to see um, uh, if I could develop, you know, a project with legs that would look at the sort of interactions between, um, you know, parts of sort of Southeastern Africa and, uh, and South Asia. And that's how I sort of, you know, got going and through conversations, you know, with him. Uh, and again, he was very generous. Um, I could go, you know, again, I remember going into his office many times on a Friday afternoon and, you know, leaving like two hours later um, after we'd had just a kind of free-flowing conversation. So he was incredibly, um, you know, useful as a sort of interlocutor um, uh, and helped me think, you know, think a lot of things through. And so that's how um, how that developed. Originally sort of looking at kind of Indian merchants then in Mozambique was, was sort of the project. And that's kind of what the PhD thesis was. Um, uh, you know, but it then, um, uh, you know, which was fine. Um, but I was always interested, and this is also then what I was able to do in the uh, in the thesis dissertation, um, was not just look at Indian sort of in Mozambique, but then also kind of um, interactive history. So, um, and that's where, anyway, we can talk more about it, you know, but that's where then sort of questions about consumption and so on came in, uh, trying to also bring then. Um, India into the picture and kind of try to think about, you know, the sort of movement through circulation rather than kind of diaspora, meaning not so much Indians leave point A and go to point B. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you look at point B, but actually trying to think about um, kind of back and forth movement and indeed a kind of, you know, circulation or circulatory kind of networks. Um, and that's really then what I developed sort of, you know, for for the book, I did a bit more research and, um, and uh, yeah, and wanted to think more about about mobility and sort of migration in a kind of circulatory sort of way. So that's mm-hmm. that's where <laughs> that's where the book sort of uh, you know emerged from. Wonderful, thank you for that. So um, and that gives us a, a nice a nice leeway into into talking about the the book and even the first uh, the first line of the book. Because the first line of the book I like very much, it's uh, Lakshmi-chan, Moti-chan was enmeshed in a world on the move. So I suppose a, a good question to help us situate ourselves, I mean, we, we've talked about um, Africa and we know South Asia, but um, who was this figure and uh, when and where was he enmeshed? Sure. Um, well, you know, I've, I would have liked uh, through, you know, throughout the book to have had... Uh, much more biographical information uh, than I was able to get. But uh, what little I could get for Lakshmi Chan Motichan was um, he was uh, an important, um, you know, figure, uh, an important, um, probably um, almost sort of sure of this, uh, an important agent uh, for, um, you know, uh, his family um, back in, uh, you know, back in Diu, which is uh, the sort of island Andropo, um, off the coast of what is today Gujarat, uh, you know, the Katiba coast. Um, and Lakshmi Chand um, arrives on Mozambique Island 
um, which is this island off the coast of northern Mozambique, uh, which for a long time was, um, you know, a really important also sort of um, uh, entrepot. Um, it gets eventually sort of overshadowed in the 19th century by Zanzibar. Um, uh, but it was a very, very important entrepot um, in, in, in previous you know, centuries and indeed even into the 19th. And he um, arrives in Mozambique Island as a young boy in the 1760s or so. Uh, and, um, uh, you know, he's someone who kind of, uh, as far as I can tell, kind of moves up the ranks, you know, learns the kind of business uh, in Mozambique, um, also learns, um, which not all merchants, you know, spoke, but learns um, at least one, uh, you know, local African language, uh, but of course is, uh, you know, is a Gujarati speaker, but also knows Portuguese. Um, and so he, uh, he becomes a sort of, you know, this prominent figure who's invested in uh, all sorts of trades, um, uh, you know, most obviously the cloth trade, um, you know, textiles are very important. We can talk a bit more about that perhaps later on. Um, but also, he's um, invested in the ivory trade as well, in the procurement of ivory. Uh, but then also is invested, uh, becomes invested in the slave trade. Um, uh, and then that ultimately means a connection to um, a kind of silver trade that uh, um, uh, sort of brings him into contact with the Atlantic, particularly the Southern Atlantic, uh, and sort of slavers from uh, from Brazil, but also uh, from the uh, um, Rio de la Plata. Um, uh, and so that's, you know, that's who he is. But again, I would have liked to have had many more biographical details, but often it was very difficult to um, sort of access, uh, you know, these lives with any great um, you know, sort of detail. <laughs> no, but it's nice. And the fact that his story uh, opens the book really takes you there straight away, which is why, which is why I enjoyed it so much. So before we, we, we talk about these um, other chapters a little bit more in depth, the, one of the sort of more general arguments that you're making in, in the book is the importance of consumption for understanding um, trading routes um, with the South Asian, South Asian uh, merchants in this period. So could you please briefly explain why this was an important focus for you? Sure. Um, you know, I was, uh, along with um, one or two other people uh, whom I'd met on the kind, you know, during the sort of PhD years, who then I'd become, you know, sort of colleagues at other institutions. Um, the thinking was, you know, particularly in regards to, um, you know, to Africa and to Africans, right? The idea is that Africa and Africans enter, you know, enter kind of... Um, larger histories as producers, right? So either as, um, you know, as slaves, right? Uh, or as kind of, you know, workers, right? Uh, on mines, at, you know, et cetera, uh, in the kind of later, you know, sort of late 19th and uh, 20th century. So it's always sort of African-Africans as producers. But what if we sort of invert that? What if we think about uh, the place of Africa and of Africans as consumers, as buyers and consumers of, uh, a variety of products, um, and in my case, uh, that was cloth, because you know historically, cloth has been particularly Indian cloth, Indian textiles, and really cotton cloth. So we're not talking uh, so much fine silks and so on, uh, though there's some of that, um, but that tended to go to uh, sort of uh, Southeast Asia um, uh, and parts of the Gulf and so on. But for Eastern Africa and Southeastern Africa, um, it was really cotton cloth. Indian cotton cloth that was sort of central to exchange and to exchange networks. Um, and so uh, 
I wanted to sort of make arguments um, uh, that kind of stressed the importance of, um, you know, what Africans were buying, the sorts of cloths that they were buying, the particularities as far as I could um, identify them, um, or the types of cloths that they were, you know, looking to buy that were also shaped in part by particular sort of, um, you know, social logics and cultural logics, you know, related to, uh, in some cases, uh, you know, fashion. So what was um, in, you know, one season, two seasons later was not, um, uh, you know, and uh, sort of make a case that, well, you know, um, uh, these buyers, you know, have ideas about, um, you know, perhaps what, um, you know, it might be appropriate for a particular kind of you know, ritual purpose or what might indeed sort of look good or not in this, you know, and this changes. So they have this sort of, um, uh, there is a consumption story here. These are sort of consumers who have an influence um, beyond um, their sort of, you know, immediate, you know, area, right? They, they in fact have have an influence um, over many thousands of miles across the ocean, you know, back in India. So I wanted to um, start from there rather than start from looking at, you know, Africans as, you know, producers as slaves and, you know, what have you. So that's why. And then also, though, you know, consumption allowed me to then also think about India as a consumer of African ivory, for example, and indeed also as a consumer of um, uh, of, of African slaves, which is, um, uh, you know, a trade that's still um, not as well sort of researched as it uh, as it could be. So, you know, you have this sort of um, um, almost um, reciprocal sort of, uh, you know, consumption that is driving exchange. And that's really what I wanted to, um, you know, argue about. And, and to then go on to make an even bigger sort of point that we need to be attentive to um, the uh, sort of consumption of uh, and the importance of local markets mm-hmm. to the structuring of exchange within the Indian Ocean, right? There was a lot of work done on um, on the European trades and, you know, a lot of work done on uh, the European textile trade, meaning the, you know, the companies, meaning the East India Company, meaning even, you know, the Dutch, uh, and their trades either within the Indian Ocean, the so-called intra-Asian trade, um, uh, or then the trade to Europe. Uh, but of course, much of the cloth that gets exchanged and gets you know shipped around the ocean is not being shipped in European vessels. Is not being sort of financed by Europeans, but it's being shipped and financed by um, you know uh, Indian Ocean sort of networks, you know, trafficking networks. Um, and so. Uh, but we haven't really looked in any great detail at those at those local markets that are sort of driving much of this exchange. And so I wanted to put one little sort of brick in that, you know, in that mm-hmm. uh, in that wall. Mm-hmm. And I think this this comes across very well because exactly we you discuss um, you discuss both Southern Africa and, and South Asia as well. So this is this 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 works very well throughout all of the chapters. Now the 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 merchants in which you which you focus on these Vanya merchants, they shifted mm-hmm. their trade route um, uh, from the Arabian Peninsula and the Red Sea down to the southeast coast of Africa. And this mm-hmm. is what the book explores. So I was wondering, could you first tell us um, why they shifted their, their area of activity? Sure. I mean, these are um, these Vanya networks are networks that. Uh, you know, historically have been um, in the uh, sort of, uh, um, you know, Arabian Sea or 
what some think should be called the Afrasian Sea, um, uh, meaning the sort of Western Indian Ocean. They've been active for many a century, right? Particularly in the Southern Red Sea, in places like Mocha, etc. Um, but they, um, you know, they start to face um, in the early part of the 18th century, some you know some challenges. They start to be um, uh, sort of face you know they start to face some restrictions um, on various sorts of practice, for example, including religious, but also sumptuary practice. Um, uh, and although they were in Mocha um, as a sort of as an important um, you know, place uh, in the Putin entrepot, um, they had been granted um, uh, a, a sort of a protected you know, status, right, uh, for which they paid a sort of, you know, a poll tax. Um, uh, you know, this is from the middle of the 17th you know, century, in the 1650s. Um, uh, th- they are granted this sort of protected status by the, uh, you know, by the imam. Um, in the early part of the, um, of the 18th century, um, they are sort of starting to be, you know, forcibly converted. They are starting to be attacked. Um, they are being sort of, you know, heavily, um, you know, treated. There's a sort of a heavy hand. Uh, you know, some, you know, some governors of Mocha are demanding things like large cash, you know, payments, cash loans from them that they never repay. And so Mocha becomes um, uh, sort of an unfavorable, uh, you know, place. And what you start to find is that, uh, you know. These banya, um, uh, who you know are, serve, are serving as bankers and you know um, as merchants and so on, uh, they start to sort of leave Mocha, right? So the Southern Red Sea, um, and generally the understanding had been in the sort of historiography that they then sort of retreat back to Gujarat um, and you know uh, end up sort of investing in the kind of ruling you know classes of the day right um uh but what i sort of argue has been missed is that there's not really um a retreat there there might have been some of that but most of what happens is that there's a reorientation and this is really in keeping with the um you know history uh of networks sort of more broadly right you know networks often reorient you know the trade they um move from one place to another they don't necessarily simply retreat right um and so where do they go? They go to Southeast Africa. Um, you know, they, they, they uh, sort of move their capital um, and move themselves, um, uh, you know, to uh, places like Mozambique Island. Um, I also wanted to just, by the way, I mean, there was an understanding, actually, particularly in a recent um, work that these merchants uh, do end up sort of, you know, coming back to the Red Sea, to places like Misawa, um, but only in the 19th century, um, within a kind of, um, you know, a sort of a commercial you know, revival of the 19th century and increased British involvement in the region, meaning uh, that they sort of, um, you know, they come in uh, or they come back to the Red Sea, you know, so again, to keep this, um, you know, sort of clear, uh, you know, generally the story had been that they faced these uh, sort of, you know, restrictive conditions uh, in the early 18th you know, century and retreat, right, and go back to Gujarat uh, and are therefore sort of, you know, removed um, from, you know, from exchange and so on in the Western Indian Ocean. But they come back in the 19th, in the 1830s, 1840s in places like Misawa in the Red Sea. Um, but kind of, 
you know, through a sort of European-led commercial revival in the region. Now, you know, there is something of a commercial you know, revival in the region in which sort of European capital and European merchants play an important part. But I think what, what had been entirely missed was that um, uh, there's this reorientation. And so uh, that's the history that's sort of, you know, behind this move then to Southeast Africa. Um, and, you know, the, these merchants sort of continued to be, you know, very prominent, you know, sort of players um, uh, in exchange uh, in the Western Indian Ocean. Okay. Wonderful. Thanks for that. So they've, they've reorientated themselves away from um, this Arabian Peninsula and down and down to down to Southeast Africa. But they've mm. managed to keep these routes going for, for quite considerable amounts of time. So I was wondering, how did they manage to keep their routes profitable? Right. Um, and again, I should say that, of course, um, you know, uh, various uh, um, sort of South Asian you know, networks had been um, active on the East African you know, coast, um, including you know, Banya, but um, not in any great number uh, and not in any kind of sustained way. And so it's, it's only really in the, um, uh, from the early 18th you know, century because of the sort of reorientation that you get this kind of sustained uh, involvement um, uh, of, you know, of, of, uh, of, of these networks. Now, how, how they maintain their routes profitable we shouldn't overlook that, of course, there were, you know, many shipwrecks, there were many failures, um, you know, merchants, uh, uh, you know, struggled at times. But I think what is key, something um, uh, I sort of mentioned uh, a few minutes ago, is uh, their never control over, but access to um, the procurement of cloth. So Indian cloth is central to exchange. You can't really, in the 18th you know, century, and indeed even um, in the early parts of the 19th, you can't do much of anything um, in East Africa, in Southeast Africa, uh, without cloth, right? Um, and you must know what uh, is in demand, hence you know, the whole consumption thing. Um, <clears throat> you must know what's in demand, otherwise you can bring the wrong type of cloth, uh, you know, to the market and you will have, you know, a very poor sort of experience uh, and won't get what you, you know, what you come sort of looking for. So cloth is key and merchants never, you know, these merchants never control weavers or weaving labor in India. They never have, uh, there are times, you know, attempts are made, including by the Portuguese colonial state to bring in sort of weavers into Diu, also in, in, into Daman, and that's, you know, Somewhat successful, but it doesn't really, um, uh, it's not ultimately successful and doesn't really serve these African markets. Um, so they're never, they're always working through um, sort of brokers, right? Uh, in the Indian case, they never have access, um, they, they never control weaving labor. Um, and that's, an, and that is an important point, but they have access to this weaving labor through these brokers. And so cloth um, is really key um and you know portuguese merchants uh, you know french merchants and even brazilian merchants never fully um well never had access to these procurement networks mm -hmm. right um and never i would also argue you know i mean understood that yes you know there are different sorts of demand um in southeast africa and we have to be you know, um, and this changes, um, uh, but also didn't have because again they 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 they, they didn't have access um, to you know the cloth in the ways that these merchants 
had and certainly also not in the kinds of you know volume that these merchants had. I mean, we're talking about many um, sort of millions of pieces, uh, you know, in certain years. It's a very high volume trade, actually, um, that also then on the African side, these Gujarati merchants um, sort of organize quite effectively through African intermediaries and are very, very attentive to, um, you know, what is in demand and what is not. So um, that's what what I would say um, certainly gives them an advantage over over their competitors um, and uh, I think kept their routes profitable. I mean, again, you know, it's hard at times to access um, certain figures and so on, um, uh, you know, in terms of rates of profitability and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, it's cloth that is central. Okay, okay. So it's basically this uh, understanding um, consumption patterns, which which allow these Gujarati merchant, merchants to be more successful than the European or the Arab traders at this time. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Indeed. Absolutely. Super. So um, let's 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 think again about uh, consumption, but rather than in in Southeast Africa, um, in India, because there's a very interesting discussion in, in chapter four. And uh, here you tell us about the way ivory was used, and um, and how this impacts upon the the Vanya's business. So could you please talk us through how ivory consumption fits into the picture? Sure. Um... Again, you know, this is a history that uh, goes um, into, you know, uh, quite remote periods, um, you know, uh, from, you know, already by the sort of 7th and 8th century sort of CE, uh, South Asia uh, begins to emerge um, as a fairly significant market for East African ivory. Um, So it's, you know, it's a trade with a very long, you know, history. Um, But... You know, what we've had is sort of just kind of, you know, snippets. I wanted to try to give this history, um, you know, some more kind of, um, uh, you know, some more detail, right? But also look at roots and so on. You would just have these, um, yeah, sort of very partial bits of evidence, um, uh, but that would at least make it clear that this is a very old, you know, sort of trade. And, you know, why, you know, why um, East African Ivory. Um, this is really, you know, of course, India, you know, South Asia, right? Uh, you know, has elephants, um, but elephants in India tended to be used um, as kind of laboring animals, right? As sort of beasts of burden, uh, if you will, um, and so were too valuable, really, to be slaughtered uh, for their tusks in any kind of, uh, you know, large numbers, <clears throat> but also tusks. Kind of the Indian elephant, uh, its tusks were never kind of large enough for carving, um, uh, and were found only actually in male. In male elephants, um, uh, the African male elephant, though the tusks are much sort of larger than the sort of than the Asiatic elephant. Okay, um, but also um, African ivory wasn't prone to discoloring and wasn't of a brittle nature, um, which the you know which the tusks of Asian elephants were. And so um, uh, you know, so the interest in in East African ivory. You know, really grows and intensifies uh, from these early, you know, centuries, <clears throat> and it's used. You know, ivory is used in a variety of ways. It's used, um, uh, you know, to make combs, to make arrowheads, to make sort of seals, even you know, spindle whorls. Um, so it's used in, you know, in warfare. Many um, Indian towns had ivory carvers, um, but the ivory in the 18th, you know, century that I um, sort of write about. Uh, 
was used uh, also in these variety of ways, but also um, that there, again, would have also been an older history um, used in, um, in or, or as bangles, I should say, that were worn uh, mostly by, um, or worn by married, um, though in some cases uh, unmarried women. Um, so, you know, along with other sort of items of jewelry, such as gold, for example, um, or indeed, you know, silver necklaces, um, ivory bangles are used by women um, uh, as part of adornment practices that sort of denote wealth and social status. Um, and ivory bangles, um, uh, particularly for married women, were worn throughout their married life. Um, uh, but these were, uh, you know, these were burnt um, uh, whenever, you know, a husband sort of died if a woman uh, did um, also then, you know, um, through kind of, you know, funeral pyre kind of death, um, uh, also then, you know, sort of die. But certainly uh, at her death, uh, these bangles, um, you know, were burnt. So there's this sort of um, uh, the sort of constant uh, need for ivory, uh, this, you know, quite robust consumer demand um, in the 18th and 19th, you know, centuries. Uh, but also it's a practice that although it was once sort of the preserve of wealthy married woman, uh, sort of gradually um, spreads down the social hierarchy. And so, um, you know, you find even sort of low caste women are able to afford them as, uh, you know, symbols of, of marital, of, uh, of um, marital bliss. Um, mm -hmm. uh, and um, yeah, again, as I've said, you know, a wife didn't pass uh, these, uh, these bangles on to her daughters, but, you know, she broke them as a sign of grief at her husband's death, or they were, you know, or they were burnt. Um, uh, and, you know, certainly if she died before her husband, uh, she was cremated along with her bride ornament. So the ivory was burnt. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. Thanks. Thanks for that. So we've, we've talked a bit about cloth, or quite a bit about cloth, and we talked about the ivory, but uh, one of the other important commodities, sounds horrible to describe it as a commodity here, sure. of course it was a commodity, was, were, were slaves. And these are, these are also important, but in, in, in a slightly different way. So could you please tell us how these Vanya merchants were tied up or not of the, in the trade in slaves? Sure. Um, so essentially they get um, uh, sort of tied up with the, uh, with the slave trade because from the um, sort of early to mid 18th century, um, we see a development in slave trading that's, um, you know, it's sort of driven by French, um, you know, French demand um, in the Mascarene Islands, uh, so Mauritius and Réunion. Um, uh, and, you know, and French merchants uh, are developing sort of a plantation type agriculture uh, in the Mascarenes. Um, tied to you know sugar and this really intensifies um uh in the late 18th early part of the 19th centuries um again i should say that you know there was also an earlier history uh in slave trading um uh, but this 18th you know century demand is uh you know is quite a sort of significant demand um and it is driven uh, at least initially by French slavers. And so you find that um, increasingly uh, in a coastal and particularly interior sort of Mozambique um, or, you know, south sort of central um, 
you know, uh, um, uh, South Central Africa, um, but even other parts of Southeast Africa become sort of sources for African, for, for, um, for African slaves. Indeed, you know, the island of Madagascar becomes also uh, both a sort of importer and exporter of slaves um, uh, in the, uh, you know, in the late 18th and early 19th centuries. And then eventually also um, you find that from also from the sort of late 18th, early 19th you know, century, um, uh, that Brazilian, you know, slavers, uh, but also um, sort of, you know, Spanish slavers from Montevideo, for example, um, come around the Cape to um, to South East Africa, to the Mozambique coast, uh, to purchase, you know, slaves um, as, um, you know, British patrols um, uh, in this in the Southern Atlantic um, uh, around sort of abolitionist, you know, measures uh, start to um, affect some routes. Uh, it's still profitable to come all the way around the Cape and, and not go to what is today Angola for slaves, for Brazilian merchants. And so places like Rio, for example, um, but also Bahia um, start to import quite large numbers of Mozambique slaves. And so, you know, Indian merchants, um, uh, you know, don't just um, watch this sort of unfold, but actually uh, in many ways enable the sort of trade to occur because, again, of um, of their access to cloth, you know, cloth being um, important, as I've said, not just for the purchase of ivory, but also for the purchase of slaves. Um, you have to... Um, you know, you have to acquire slaves with, you know, with cloth. Um, and these merchants who come from the Southern Atlantic, uh, but also French merchants actually bring in, um, bring in large amounts of, you know, silver coin, um, uh, you know, from, you know, South America. Uh, and they're able to buy slaves with coin, actually, um, because there's a, a cloth intermediation, if you will. So in other words, uh, although you could uh, eventually buy a slave or slaves for you know silver. At some point, those slaves will have been purchased in the interior uh, with cloth, and um, and so you find that uh, these Banya merchants um, uh, become you know shippers of, of great volumes of silver, uh, you know back to Diu, back to Surat, for example, as well, um, you know precisely uh, because of the cloth story, but also because um, you know silver uh, is very much. Um, sort of medium you can use in Western India uh, to help sort of, um, you know, to help you with, you know, with credit payments, etc. Uh, you know, uh, you know, Gujarat, Western India is also a silver economy. Um, you know, as you all know, I'm sure, you know, India has a very long history of, um, you know, of, of, of being also um, sort of a coin economy, if you will, right, a currency, uh, a, a coin currency economy, you know, as well. So, um, um yeah, so these merchants uh, become um, mostly as financiers, in some cases as shippers of slaves, but mostly as you know financiers of um, uh, of sort of you know slave trading um, you know exchanges, but then also simply through um, their importation of cloth, um, uh, they are effectively um, you know uh, in a sense undergirding uh, slave trade. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Thank you. So we've talked a lot about about uh, these these uh, Vanya merchants' success and also how their their route was established. But as you describe in the book, by the eighteen thirty and into the eighteen forties, there was a decline in in their trade routes. So I was wondering what was the what was the reason behind this decline? Sure. Um, 
you know, traditionally, um, or I, I should say conventionally, uh, the idea was that, uh, you know, already from the middle of the 18th you know, century, um, various sorts of uh, Indian Ocean sort of networks, South Asian and others, but especially South Asian, um, become increasingly sort of, um, you know, subsumed under a growing kind of British imperial you know, presence um, in, the, uh, in the Indian Ocean. And so, you know, so merchants um, uh, and merchant networks uh, become kind of, um, yeah, you know, assume these sort of um, subservient positions within a growing kind of British, you know, hegemon, right? Uh, um, and I wanted to, you know, partly write against that by identifying, um, uh, you know, competition from other South Asian networks, right? So we often, you know, forget that. Um, uh, although, again, this picture is now kind of, uh, you know, changing, really. Uh, and I'm sort of, uh, you know, hopefully a part of that, you know, sort of change that. Uh, within the Indian Ocean, of course, you 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 have competition, uh, you know, between, you know, merchant groups. It sounds like an obvious thing to say. Um, uh, but in this period, the great competition was seen to be, um, you know, sort of European capital, you know, British capital and the British imperial presence. Um, but what is really uh, in the 1830s and, and 1840s for these Banya merchants is, um, is Kachi Batya merchants, particularly from... Uh, uh, you know, from a place uh, um, uh, that's also part of sort of Gujarat today, Kutch, um, uh, particularly places like Manvi uh, in Kutch. Uh, these Kachipatya, um, uh, which have the sort of support of another important, they're sometimes overlooked um, sort of imperial formation um, in the Western Indian the Omani um, sort of empire, uh, they start to um, become heavily invested in Zanzibar. Um, uh, it's not only Kachibati, but they are particularly, you know, important, and they start, you know, showing up uh, and competing with uh, these, you know, Diu and Daman, you know, Banya from around the 1820s or so, um, and you get therefore sort of complaints from these Banya um, that these Kachis are bringing in, um, you know, cloth. Uh, that Africans are beginning to buy. There's also, you know, there's also, uh, by this point, American cloth as well. American textiles, you know, certainly start to, um, you know, have an impact. Um, and, you know, there's an interesting history of sort of American, um, you know, textile imports into into East Africa. Um, but it's mostly the competition from these Kachibatia. And so this starts to undermine um, the position of Banya, um in Mozambique Island uh, and along the sort of, uh, you know, Mozambique Channel, uh, you know, but they will, again, in keeping with this um, larger history of reorientation, they will then, these, you know, these Banya will then reorient themselves and they will then um, sort of go back to the Red Sea and will find that they are then operating um, from around this time, 1840s, 1850s, uh, in Masawa, in the Red Sea. Um, so, uh, you know, um, and, and, and indeed, they, they sort of never quite leave Mozambique as such. Um, you know, you find uh, that there are, you know, the UN Daman in a Banya uh, in Mozambique in the late 19th in a century into, into the 20th. Um, uh, but that's a history that's sort of, um, uh, you know, greatly under, you know, under-researched. <laughs> Wonderful. Thanks. Thanks so much. We've really sort of shot through uh, what is a really rich book in, in, a, in a very short amount of time so thanks for thanks for thanks for doing that i really enjoyed reading the book i'd like to recommend this to 
anyone who's listening, it's really I knew nothing about about this topic at all. But you can you to get totally immersed into this uh, into this world of trade and. Um, Really, is a fascinating and very readable book. So, so thanks very much. But my question now is: now that this book is out, what are your current and future research projects? Thanks, Ian, uh, for those kind words. Um, I'm sort of uh, uh, working with some others. I'm part of a kind of a, a team uh, that's looking at the um, at the pearl trades and at pearling in the Indian Ocean. Um, and uh, I think something will spin out of that. Um, well, I'll be contributing, and from that, I'm. Uh, I'll see if a book, if the next book will come out of that uh, or not. It's a project that's trying to sort of bring the different purling zones of the Indian Ocean, uh, meaning the sort of um, Red Sea and Gulf, uh, South India, Sri Lanka, and then the kind of uh, Southeast Asian, uh, kind of Northern Australian sort of waters, um, you know, into one kind of frame. And it's a very large sort of multi-year you know, project. Um, uh, so I'm involved with that. Uh, I'm also interested, I'm getting more interested um uh, also in the kind of environmental histories uh, of pearling, but also um, uh, uh, of some other marine products and kind of the history of you know, marine product extraction uh, from the Indian Ocean, um, but perhaps, you know, also beyond. Um, I'm still seeing if I can, um, uh, you know, I want to write a second kind of really ambitious uh, book that will, um, uh, you know, sort of, speak to more than one, you know, kind of ocean, you know, I'm very interested in ocean frames, you know, ocean frameworks, uh, but they can also end up being um, uh, quite restricting if you um, only look at one ocean, because of course, these exchanges, and that's what I sort of also try to do in ocean of trade, um, mm -hmm. you know, these, these, these exchanges uh, go beyond any, any one ocean. And so um, uh, just talking about, uh, you know, the Indian Ocean or the Atlantic, you can sort of miss if you have that as your frame. You can miss these sort of interconnections, these inter kind of regional, these interoceanic exchanges. So, um, you know, I'll see. You know, you know, perhaps I'll end up writing a sort of a book on um, kind of a global history of pearling. Um, that's something that I'm kind of is you know swimming around in my mind. Uh -huh. <laughs> oh, pun intended. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> um, you know, um, and then also maybe I don't know. I've, I've become interested also in things like sponges. Um, you know, which, uh, you know, they have a rich Caribbean history, but also a Mediterranean and so on. So, um, yeah, so I'm, I'm both starting to work, you know, on pearling, but, um, uh, you know, I might extend that to, you know, other marine products. Um, so, you know, so we'll see. We'll see. Wonderful. So sounds absolutely fascinating. So we look forward to that um, sometime, sometime in the future. Yeah, right. It's Good. So there's uh, nothing more for me to do apart from to thank you again for coming on the show and uh, thank you for your wonderful book. And thank you, Ian, for your time and for those kind words. And um, well, and all the best. Thank you. Bye bye. Bye bye. Thanks so much for downloading the new books in South Asian Studies podcast. I've been your host, Ian Cook. Today we've been talking about Ocean of Trade by Pedro Machado. Thanks again for listening and I hope you will again next time. Ta ra. <laughs>